Greetings, everyone. I'm Jeffrey K. Lyons. In the wake of the Dylan Mulvaney fiasco, Anheuser-Busch has announced that it's going to lay off about 350 employees. And also the White House has been caught with their hands in the cookie jar, actively colluding with big tech to censor free speech. And in Michigan, there's a new law that is chilling verbal discourse. Misgendering a person can be a reason now for a felony charge. And finally, another win for freedom of speech. A University of Illinois student wins a lawsuit when she's silenced in class. All of this in Dictionary Wars on today's edition of Narrative Wars. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. You don't want to miss this. We the people are sick and tired. Let's peel back the curtain of confusion to shed light upon the mainstream media madness. And now, Narrative Wars, with your host, Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired, so tired. Well, let's jump right into our first piece, which falls into the category don't force your woke ideology or woke narrative on me. Popular beer company plans layoffs. ABC News, July 28th, 2023. Let's take a listen to cut number one. A company spokesperson tells ABC News Anheuser-Busch plans to lay off hundreds of corporate employees. The layoffs come months after a product endorsement from a transgender influencer set off a consumer boycott that hammered sales. ABC News business reporter Alexis Christophers has more on that and your other business headlines. Alexis, what are you watching today? Watching the beer news today because these layoffs come after Bud Light lost its spot as the top-selling U.S. beer to Modelo for the second straight month. So Anheuser-Busch says it will eliminate 2% of its workforce that's about 380 corporate positions. The company said frontline workers such as brewery and warehouse employees will not be impacted by the layoffs. Anheuser-Busch has watched sales decline following a consumer boycott in response to Bud Light partnering with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. After the initial boycott, Anheuser-Busch issued a statement saying, quote, they never intended to be part of a discussion that divides people. Well, hmm, seems like they didn't do their marketing research. Their excuse is we never did intend to be part of a discussion that divides people. Hmm. Did they even uh, think about their loyal consumers of their product over the last, who knows, two decades, three decades? Seems like they're more concerned with offending the two to three percent of the rainbow people than they are offending 97 percent of their loyal audience of consumers. Well, here's a follow-up article, Bud Light maker Anheuser-Busch to lay off hundreds of employees. Uh, this is NBC News now, July 27, 2023. And they're saying in this article that Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch, which owns uh, Bud Light, is going to lay off 350 employees and that the employees will not include your frontline staff members such as the brewery, warehouse staff, drivers, field sales, and others. The company said the move was designed to simplify, reduce layers within its organizations. So 
The um, translation of that is they're laying off the office workers. We used to call that RIF, reduction in force. And this is something large corporations routinely do when they have sales slumps. In another article, Bud Light Parent Company lays off hundreds of workers. This is Washington Free Beacon, July 27, 2023. And they note that uh, Anheuser-Busch's troubles began back in April of this year, April of 2023, when Bud Light's partnership with transgender influencer uh, Dylan Mulvaney... Don't be a girly man! That's Dylan Mulvaney. Uh, Bud Light uh, has since lost its position as America's top-selling beer, and Modella took first place with 8.4% of sales, according to the Wall Street Journal. And in another follow-up piece, Bud Light shoots down from number one to number four for most popular beers in bars and restaurants. This is Daily Caller, July 20th, 2023. Formerly top-ranked Bud Light is now sitting at number four slot, according to Newsweek, uh, which obtained their data from uh, from a organization called Union, a company that creates software for uh, logging orders in the beer beverage industry. And uh, secondly, Bud Light sales took the hardest hits in. Now, kind of take a guess. Where would you think? I would guess somewhere in the south, in your more blue-collar states, um, this is where I would guess. And yep, sure enough, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Texas. That's where they were hardest hit. Of course, they're hit across the country, but state by state, it's going to vary the amount of uh, sales hits that they, they've taken. Well, in order to salute the former uh, Budweiser consumers, we want to play this farewell uh, sort of a spoof ad, I suppose, but I think it, it fits. Uh, let's take a listen to cut number two. Real American heroes. Today we salute you, former Budweiser drinkers of America. Together, you've sworn to never drink another drop of Bud Light or any other beer from Anheuser-Busch. Ancient history. Sure, it might taste like piss from a hamster, but it gave us a cheap buzz. Oh! And a cheap buzz is exactly what we've needed over the last two years. You said it, brother! So while there might be a tear in your beer and a hole in your heart, hold your heads high and know that today is a new day and there's other beers in the sea. Moving right along to our next piece, this falls into the category, Shining the Light on Government Corruption. The article is Biden administration-led massive speech censorship operation. Former state AG will testify. Let's take a listen to this. Cut number two. Now it's big tech, big government, big media, and these NGOs or not-for-profits or whatever this organization is, <clears throat> all designed to, to run, a, run a, frankly, run a misinformation operation on us. I mean, you, yes. you know, remember those, that, those 51 folks who, uh, 51 former intel officials who did that letter and they said, oh, this, uh, the, the Hunter Biden story has all the earmarks of a classic Russian information operation. Well, the real misinformation operation was run by our government with this group you just talked about, with big media, with big tech, to keep information from us, from the American people. And they did it just days and weeks before the most important election we have, election for president of the United States. 
So this is a story that just keeps giving. Now, this was a cutback March 29, 2023, but as a follow-up article, uh, this is new information, 27th July, 2023. Again, this is Jim Jordan, representative from Ohio, uh, and Jordan obtains Facebook files showing White House pressure to censor Americans. All right, this is uh, serious. So, I mean, we don't, obviously, Jim Jordan's been on the news quite a bit, but we don't want this to just kind of go into the background uh, when something comes out that's quite powerful, quite important in terms of the First Amendment rights of Americans being trashed. Well, we need to take notes. So here we are, this story, again, uh, Breitbart, 27 July, 2023. And a couple notable things from this article or piece, uh, uh, never before seen emails from Facebook were obtained by the House Judiciary Committee. That's the one uh, chaired by Rep. Jim Jordan of Ohio. And uh, so we're shedding sudden light upon this corruption that is coming right out of the White House. On April the 2021, Facebook employees circulated an email for Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and COO Sheryl Sandberg. And quote, uh, they wrote in this email, quote, we are facing continued pressure from external stakeholder holders, including the Biden White House, to remove posts. Uh, in addition, uh, in another email uh, or correspondence that took place, uh, April 2021 email, Nick Clegg, that's Facebook's president for global affairs, uh, he informed his team at Facebook that Andy Slavitt, senior advisor to President Biden, was, quote, outraged that Facebook did not remove a particular post. Since when does the White House have the power to override the First Amendment and free speech rights of American citizens? And I would respond, since never. But this is what was happening in April of 2021, and they've got the goods. So let's hope that things change. Uh, when Clegg, quote, countered that removing content like that would present a significant incursion into traditional boundaries of free expression, <laughs> i.e. First Amendment, uh, Slavit, Slavit, he's with, again, uh, with, with the White House, disregarded the warning and the First Amendment. That's Andy Slavitt, senior advisor to the uh, President Biden. Well, what can we conclude of this information, this new information? Of course, it's going back to April of 21, but it's only coming to light now in Jim Jordan's committee, July 27, 2023, late, late July. And we're just starting the month of August now. So this is recent information. This is fresh information. What can we conclude? Well, if the executive branch of the government, that's Article 2 of the United States Constitution, uh, that uh, troubling piece of paper that gives Americans uh, their, their rights, the Constitution, along with the Bill of Rights and the other amendments to the Constitution, if the executive branch of the government, the Article II branch of the government, refuses to acknowledge rights in the Constitution, such as the First Amendment, the right of free speech, then we as a nation are no longer a constitutional republic. Now, these are my words. This was not in the article. In fact, we're under tyranny 
of an out-of-control regime, a type of soft dictatorship. Now, we're going to continue to follow this story and, and any other important developments that come out of Jim Jordan's committee. Folks, we're so thankful uh, for you as an audience. In fact, Narrative Wars continues to expand that audience, both in the United States and internationally. Uh, we're thankful to you, our Narrative Wars listeners. We know that you could choose to do other things with your time, and we honor your commitment to free speech, American values that still make us proud to be living in the land of the free and the home of the brave. You can follow us on social media, Getter and Twitter, and just search for Jeffrey K. Lyons. That's Jeffrey K. Lyons on these apps. And I do look at the comments, and uh, best place to put the comments is when I post a new program that goes up, a new podcast. Go ahead and comment there, and we do take a look at those. And we appreciate your feedback. For more information about the program, visit the website at narrativewars.org. That's narrativewars.org. And when you listen to us on your favorite podcasting app, please five-star rate, follow, and tell two to three like-minded friends. That means so much when you do that. That's how we continue to expand the Narrative Wars posse. We truly appreciate your support. You are the reason why we do this program. And now, let's continue. Well, let's take a listen to this next piece. We're going to uh, put this in the category of free speech infringement and the thought police. Well, what are we talking about? Well, this is Michigan Representative Noah Arbit who gets our Thought Police Award for the week. And he's claiming that this new bill that he's written, no, it's not a problem. No, you're not going to, it's not going to create a felony charge if you misgender somebody. Hmm, really? Let's take a listen to this cut number three. I think we're going to find that uh, there is a difference of opinion out there. Let's take a listen to cut number three. State Representative Noah Arbit's anti-hate crime legislation passed the House in bipartisan fashion last month. But in recent weeks, critics have raised concerns that if implemented, it could make it a felony to misgender someone in Michigan. Their claims Arbit calls far-right fiction, considering the bill doesn't even contain the word misgender. But Professor Emeritus William Wagner of Cooley Law School says his concern is that the bill is too vague. I get it. You know, there, there's not the word misgendering in the statute, but, you know, it doesn't have to be in the statute if somebody misconstrues or somebody says, I feel intimidated. He says to avoid challenges, the bill needs to be fixed. It's a fixable problem. I hope they fix it. Fix um, it. Um, because one way or the other, it'll go up to the court. And just like the Colorado statute that was struck down last week, you know, this one will probably be struck down, you know, as well. So who is this person, uh, Noah Arbit? Well, digging a little deeper, he's a Democrat. He is from Michigan's 20th House District. He's in his first term and he's only 28 years old. 
Arbit is the youngest LGBTQ plus ABC 123 person ever elected to serve in the Michigan legislature. So he's one of those rainbow people. Uh, is he the Michigan version of AOC on the state house level? Well, we can't say for sure. He clearly was elected with an agenda to push, a narrative to push for the LGBTQ plus rainbow people and Michigan citizens. They are not happy with his performance. How do we know? Well, here's another article. Sinclair Broadcast Group, July 21st, 2023. Democratic sponsor of updated hate crime bill becomes seventh lawmaker to face recall. Now, Michigan has a recall uh, law or statute, apparently, that makes it uh, fairly easy to drop a petition and get a recall uh, going So there's a number of people that are currently up for recall or they're pushing for recall. And so this uh, lawmaker, Noah Arbit, is one of a, of, of a half a dozen or more. State Rep Noah Arbit, Democrat, West Bloomfield, has become Michigan House's sixth Democrat lawmaker to face a recall election. And this is just six months after he's in, been in office. So, wow, didn't take him very long to offend the uh, public and those people that put him in office. Arbit is the seventh representative to face a recall election with recall petitions becoming public earlier this week against five other Democrats and one Republican. So, ah, Michigan, uh, if they don't like you and you're Republican also, they're going to put forth a recall. Okay, fair is fair. Uh, again, this is July 21st, 2023. Fresh news here. So, announced Friday, paperwork filed to kick Arbit out of office, cites his vote for House Bill 4474. So, this is what we're talking about. This is the offending piece of legislation, uh, which uh, the uh, professor, Professor Wagner, mentioned they don't have to mention certain terms in the bill, like transgender or misgendering or pronouns, but the language is vague enough that a creative prosecutor, a creative lawyer, could come up with a reason to use that law, which is poorly written, vaguely written, in order to pursue a felony charge against somebody who misgenders another person. Well, we'll see. F Michigan pronouns law declared an abomination by former judge. Now, this is another article here. Newsweek, July 3rd, 2023. Michigan's recent bill making it a felony for people to harass or intimidate someone by misgendering them and using the wrong pronouns has sparked controversy. Again, this is that same bill, House Bill 4474. And it was passed, so it's law now in the state of Michigan. If you're from Michigan and you're listening to that, maybe you are aware or aren't aware. But it was passed this year, June 30th, 2023. It was part of a package of legislation, and it would replace Michigan's existing 
Ethnic Intimidation Act and would make it a hate crime to cause someone to, quote, feel terrorized, frightened, or threatened with words. So what they've done is words are now weaponized. But in this case, your own words can be weaponized against you. There is no freedom of expression in Michigan. If you disagree with something, if you choose to say, no, I don't think so, I have a different opinion, somebody can accuse you and say that they feel terrorized, frightened, or threatened just because you choose to disagree. Well, when a nation cannot have an exchange of ideas, when opposing ideas now become weaponized against people who express opposing ideas, then we're living under tyranny. So what is happening here is that this makes the LGBTQ plus ABC, one, two, three, baby, you and me, rainbow people, a protected class in Michigan. It expands the existing law to cover sex, sexual orientation, age, gender identity or expression, and physical or mental disability. Well, as a final note here, again, the professor, Wagner, who we heard in the earlier piece, he says he thinks it's going to get struck down, this new Michigan law. He said he thinks it's going to get struck down as it was in the state of Colorado. Now, was it the same law? No. Was it something similar? Yes. It was similar in the sense that they both had to do with a cooling effect, a chilling effect upon free speech and public discourse. Denver Post, March 28, 2023. Colorado Supreme Court strikes down part of the state's cyberbullying law as unconstitutional. You know, this was a refreshing piece to read here because a lot of us think of Colorado as being very blue, very progressive, and coming from the left. But this was a fresh, refreshing report here regarding the Colorado Supreme Court. Colorado Supreme Court unanimously struck down part of the state's seven-year-old cyberbullying law Monday on the grounds that the statute limits free speech and violates both the Colorado and U.S. constitutions. So they said it not only violates the United States Constitution, Bill of Rights, First Amendment, but it also violates the Colorado Constitution. And it wasn't even a question. It was unanimous. All of the justices on the Colorado Supreme Court struck this down. I continue, as written, the law could be used to prosecute people for constitutionally protected speech. The justices found, well, yes, speech is constitutionally protected. We're supposed to have the legal right of free expression. You know, a lot of people listen to narrative wars, thousands of people all across the United States and in other countries. And I'm not naive. I know that many people may agree or may disagree. Others might just be curious, but that's okay. In the United States of America, we have constitutionally protected free speech. And that's how we hold 
a healthy public discourse. We don't have to agree with each other. But how are we going to know what we're thinking if we don't give each other the right to express our thoughts? So that's what we have in the United States of America. That's what the Colorado Supreme Court has affirmed. And I, I continue here. As written, the law could be used to prosecute people for constitutionally protected speech. This is what the justices found. The law could criminalize online communication like negative restaurant reviews. <laughs> That's pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Social media posts about public health protocols. Well, that's the sort of thing that the White House was shutting down on Facebook and other social media platforms. I rate emails. Diatribes posted about public figures by disgruntled constituents. <laughs> Doesn't that happen all the time? You know, taxes go up. We don't want taxes to go up. Some new ordinance occurs. We don't want that. Maybe there's an approval for a new, who knows, shopping center, some other project. We don't want that project next to us. You know, NIMBY, not in my backyard. So the justices uh, shut this law down, including antagonistic comments left on news sites. That happens all the time. Justice William Hood wrote in the opinion. So William Hood understands that in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, we need to uphold the right to have public discourse. And we can agree to disagree with each other. And at the end of the day, we're still Americans. Moving on to dictionary wars, today we're going to take a look at the phrase hard news. Now, what is hard news? This is a topic that we discussed um, in some of my communication courses and broadcast courses that I taught. It's really not something you can find typically in, in a dictionary. You'll find news. You may not find hard news, soft news. So we're going to just go over a couple terms quickly here. Uh, these are terms that people uh, use in the industry, sort of buzzword terms, uh, your news directors in radio and in television. Uh, examples of hard news for radio, it would be morning drive time, traffic, weather. Uh, of course, example would be a storm that's approaching, school closing. These are timely stories. They're impactful. The local, that's why you listen to uh, typically traffic and weather on the radio. They want you to be listening during morning drive and you're going to get it immediately on the radio. And, and obviously you can't watch television while you're driving. That's just well, that's just crazy. You got to keep your eyes on the road. I don't even have to explain that. And of course, the shelf life of these types of stories, quite short. Uh, obviously, uh, traffic and weather changes within the hour. Now, if a story is not a timely story, but it's still very impactful, it's important to our lives. If it's not local, but the story never expires, we have a Name for those types of stories, we call those types of stories history. World War I, World War II, European history, American history. These are stories of things that have happened in the past. They're not timely, but they're very profound. They've touched generations. 
We've had relatives that have fought and died in these wars, and our nation has been impacted and shaped by both European history, American history, and every nation has their own history. So those are historical stories. Those are important. And then you've got human interest stories. They're timely. They're impactful. They're not necessarily local, and they don't really expire. And these are your stories of a veteran's home, for example, is saved. The community rallies. The veteran's home had a leaky roof. It was about to be contemned. And the community rallies in order to save the homes. So that is a true human interest story. Uh, these stories uh, have to do with altruistic feelings. So these are just a few examples. We've got hard news. We even kind of pivoted there into, not even kind of, we did. We pivoted into your human interest and then your soft news stories. Those are your stories that are, you know, saving an animal, um, doing something good in the community. Nothing wrong with those stories. We're just talking about the, the categories of stories, your human interest stories, uh, your save a animal story. Those are typically at the end of a newscast, what they would call in television, your C block stories. This story has to do with a win. Yeah, win in favor of First Amendment and free speech. Okay, great. That's enough of that. All right. An Illinois college has settled with a conservative Christian art student who claimed the school censored her speech. Well, they did. The school sent her legal notice, TROs, to stop her from having communication with other students in her class. So let's take a listen to this. This happened in Illinois, and uh, this is Fox News, July 28, 2023, and this is cut number four. Talk to us about the civility on college campuses, or maybe the lack thereof, and how we got to this point to really, to people just being offended just for people having a different view than they do. You know, I was in my third and final year of my graduate program for art therapy counseling, and I was wrapping it up. I was, graduation was on the horizon, but, you know, I learned that throughout the course of my experience in this program, I participated in classroom discussions in which we discuss contentious issues such as race relations or religion, um, and for therapists, the postmodern theoretical framework. And so these were discussed within the classroom setting, and so I was alarmed when I had received three no contact orders that prevented me from having direct or indirect communication with um, these three students. Um, essentially, they were restraining orders that um, applied to on and off campus. Okay, so also now talk to us about how we also got to the point to where the teachers backed these three students and then asked you to explain yourself. Do you think you needed to explain yourself in that instance? I think that's a good question for my lawyer. Step in. Sure. No, I mean, look, Maggie never violated any university policy, yet the university issued no contact orders against her, prohibiting her from fully participating in classes, including discussions about, you know, race relations and, and the police, simply because they, they deemed her, uh, her beliefs as unwelcome. I mean, universities can't issue no contact orders and tell students they can't speak with other students simply for expressing their views. This is a very courageous young woman, Maggie, 
And this happened in a university in the state of Illinois. And she is a Christian, and she was studying art therapy. So she was working towards a degree where she would be a licensed therapist, and art would be a way of administering therapy. This is a very courageous woman, Maggie Dijon. She attended a university uh, in Illinois, uh, and she's settled with them regarding this dispute. She was studying a to become a therapist, and uh, her area of expertise was art therapy. So therapy uh, is being enhanced by the use of art uh, with clients. And there are various things you can do with therapy to enhance the experience for your clients. There's even music therapy uh, being used. So again, this student is... Uh, a very intelligent person, but one day she just out of the blue gets this restraining order that she can't communicate with three students that are in her class. She can't communicate with them out of class or online. And it has to do with uh, Maggie DeJong expressing some ideas. And she thought that she had freedom to have conversations on controversial topics. Uh, she mentioned uh, that there's a postmodern framework, which gave what she thought gave latitude in order to uh, discuss controversial topics. But boy, was she surprised when she got this TRO and she wasn't able to do it. So what she did was she looked for legal counsel and ended up suing the university uh, with Alliance Defending Freedom representing her. Uh, she cited three professors at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. And uh, it turned out that after a one-year battle uh, in court that she won. And as part of the settlement, uh, the university had to pay $80,000. The lawsuit was dismissed. So out of court, they had a settlement. But in addition, and this one kind of makes me uh, chuckle, uh, the settlement also stipulated that SIUE officials must re- Vise the student handbook and policies to ensure students with varying political, religious, and ideological views are welcome in the art therapy program. Actually, that's a good thing. That's a good thing right there. But uh, what made me chuckle is that three professors of the university now have to take a mandatory training related to free speech and the First Amendment. In other words, hey, you're going to have to read the Constitution of the United States, and number one, understand it, number two, uh, apply it, and number three, give the latitude for your students to have these sorts of conversations in the classroom, and it needs to be in the student handbook uh, so that teachers are not going to have any excuse. They, they need to abide by that policy. Well, this is a good thing, and it really comes in the uh, category of a huge win for free speech and the First Amendment. Way to go. Way to go, Maggie DeJong. We celebrate you this week for standing up against woke culture. Woke. 
Well, a few closing comments to today, today's program. Uh, you know, a few days ago, uh, something rather remarkable happened to me personally. And this may have also happened to you in some point in your past. I returned home after doing a few errands and I went to my bedroom to empty the pockets of my car keys and my wallet. And uh, yep, there was my keys. Yep, okay, no problem. But to my shock, my wallet wasn't in my pockets. I searched kind of frantically. Front pockets, back pockets, nope, nope, nope. I looked all over the house and then my wife and I started talking about where it could be and we called a small store, we visited and we asked uh, the owner if anybody turned in a wallet and no, it wasn't there. We continued to think about it, we scratched our heads and oh, there was another place that we went. You know, how many of us have experienced losing uh, an important item, uh, it could be wallet, sometimes even keys. Maybe there's an extra set of keys and, and you misplace it. Uh, oh, I'm calling the gym. I'm calling the grocery store. I'm calling uh, the bookstore that I went to before I came home. Well, we finally decided to call a coffee shop. Oh yeah, we went to a coffee shop and it's a small coffee shop. It's not a chain. In fact, they only have one store, but they're popular in town. And They've got a distinctly hip and college-educated clientele. And yes, yes, somebody had found my wallet and turned it in to the store manager. And at that moment, my faith in American values was boosted. Everything in the wallet was there. Nothing was missing. Well, apparently psychologists and those people who study human behavior find wallet returning a subject of worthy research. And I had to go look it up because that's the sort of thing I do. It was timely. I lost my wallet. I found my wallet. And I wondered, gee, has anybody studied wallet returning? Sure enough, NPR in 2019 reported on one such lost wallet study. <laughs> and in this study, they, they really did a thorough study, folks. 17,000 wallets were dropped in public places around the world. This takes a lot of time. You know, you got to get it on the airplanes. You got to have 17,000, not necessarily 17,000 wallets. You can reuse a certain amount of those, but you still need to have thousands of wallets. The study was called Civic Honesty Around the Globe, and it was published in the Journal of Science in 2019. Here's what the researchers found. Now, remember, they distributed more than 17,000 wallets containing various sums of money. They did this in 355 cities across 40 countries. Wow, that's a lot of travel. I wonder where they got the budget to do this study. So, in contrast to what rationalist theories of economics predict, citizens were more likely to return wallets that contain more money than less money. Well, that was a surprising finding for me. And the findings also reveal a high level of civic honesty across multiple nations. So it really didn't vary significantly from nation to nation. But surprisingly, what the researchers found was that the more money that was in the wallet, the more 
that this would be associated with returning wallet behaviors. Kind of the opposite of what you would think. You would think if there's a lot of money in the wallet, like, oh, wow, I hit the payday today. I'll just keep this. The researchers had a theory that, well, possibly, yeah, if you steal a wallet with five bucks in it, yeah, the guy's not going to miss it much. But if there's a big wad of cash in there, yeah, they're going to miss it a lot. I'm going to feel bad. Oh, I better return it. This must be money that is going to be used for some purpose, some important purpose. And this may be an important person. Who knows? They really didn't do a follow-up study. They need to, and they are just speculating at why. And that's okay, because researchers do this. They do studies. They put a question out there. They do the research. They gather the data. They report their results. And then after they report the results, quite often they have head-scratching results. And, hmm, this needs further study. And it does. And I would be very curious to see if there have been any follow-up studies to this particular study that was done in 2019. After reading these studies' results, I decided to examine the cash content of my wallet. I had the whopping sum of, wait for it, 12 bucks. A 10 and two ones. Did the $12 in the wallet further motivate the finder to hand it over to the store manager? I don't know. Because the person that Return it to the store manager, never identified themselves, so I can't thank them. Of course, I thanked the store manager profusely. After identifying myself and the contents of the wallet, the, con the coffee store manager assured me that the wallet was secure and it was in a safe place in the back of the office. So even the, the store manager thought that there were important contents in there, she didn't just put it next to the coffee beans behind the counter. She put it back in the safe, back in the office. And I really did appreciate that. Thanked her big time. Well, I need to continue thanking that uh, enterprise by going back there and having more coffee. All of this follows under the category of altruism. And according to psychologists, altruism can be defined as acting to help someone else at some cost to oneself. It can include a vast range of behaviors. Of course, there's the ultimate sacrifice of giving one's life to save others, but there's also giving money to a charity, volunteering in a soup kitchen, or simply waiting a few seconds to hold the door open for a stranger, something which I see quite frequently when I go to the post office. That's just an aside, my anecdotal observation of door-holding behavior. Probably because you're the smartest podcasting audience out there, I would imagine a high percentage of you, my audience, has opened a door for someone, a complete stranger somewhere. Perhaps you saw somebody with their bags full, or excuse me, their arms full of items Maybe they were entering the post office. They had a lot of boxes that they wanted to mail and you held the door open. Altruistic behavior. Or perhaps you saw someone in the parking lot trying to put groceries in the car. Some of the groceries fell. You stooped. You picked up some and you helped the person. It's a small thing to do. 
Altruism seems to be something that is universal. According to the 2019 study published in the Journal of Science, quote, altruism findings also reveal a high level of civic honesty across nations. So what can all of this mean? We're going to sum it up here. Psychologists don't always answer the why questions. Sometimes the deeper why questions are left for the deeper thinkers. That's your philosophers, ministers, authors, and thinkers who think deep thoughts about the nature of humanity. Well, we don't have time to launch off into an introduction to the study of metaphysics or Descartes and his Cartesian mind-body dualism theory. That's for another show. The bottom line is that there's evidence of certain human traits and behaviors that point us in the direction of the conclusion that human beings are more than a random assemblage of molecules that simply are the result of billions of years of evolutionary survival tactics. On the contrary, I'd suggest that there is evidence here that the concept that humans are created in the image of God is not such a far-fetched idea at all. In any case, as a believer in Christ, I personally took the time to thank God for something as small as the safe return of my wallet. Well, sometimes we watch the news on a regular basis and we tend to give up on Americans in particular, and worse off, humanity in general. But upon reflection of the universal trait of altruistic behavior, perhaps it's of value to take a deep breath and encourage someone this week and look for some opportunity to engage in a random act of kindness. Until next time, for Narrative Wars, I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey K. Lyons. We the people are sick and tired. So tired.